Futurized goes beneath the trends, tracking the underlying forces of disruption in tech policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. Join me, futurist Trun Arne Unheim, PhD author, investor, and serial entrepreneur, as I discuss the societal impact of deep tech such as AI, blockchain, IoT, nanotech, quantum, robotics, and synthetic biology, and tackle topics such as entrepreneurship trends for the future of work. I'm a research scholar in global systemic risk, innovation, and policy at Stanford University. On Futurized, I interview smart people with a soul, founders, authors, executives, and other thought leaders, or even the occasional celebrity. Futurized is a bi-weekly show preparing you to think about how to deal with the next decade's disruption so you can succeed and thrive no matter what happens. Futurized, conversations that matter. If you're new to the show, seek particular topics or are looking for a great way to tell your friends about the show, we've got the episode categories. Those are at futurized.org slash episodes. I am the co-author of Augmented Lean, a human-centric framework for managing frontline operation and the author of Health Tech Rebooting Society's Software, Hardware and Mindset, Future Tech, How to Capture Value from Disruptive Industry Trends, Pandemic Aftermath, How Coronavirus Changes Global Society, the Disruption Games, How to Thrive on Serial failure and of leadership from below how the internet generation redefines the workplace for an overview you can go to trondenheim.com slash books at this stage futurized is lucky enough to have several sponsors and to check them out go to futurized.org slash sponsors if you're interested in sponsoring the podcast or to get an overview of other services provided by me including how to book me for keynote speeches please go to futurized.org slash store we'll consider all brands that have demonstrably positive contributions to the future before you do anything else make sure you are subscribed to our newsletter on futurized.org where you can find hundreds of episodes of conversations that matter to the future please also leave a positive review on itunes thanks so much let's be jerome how are you welcome i'm fine nice to be here i'm excited about this interview you um are a man of the future uh i hope so (laughs) (laughs) well jerome you are um uh, certainly a uh future researcher and, uh, you know, you started out, I think, uh, with an undergraduate philosophy, um, at the American university in, uh, DC, you graduated as a futurist from Antioch university. Um, but for the last, uh, good number of years, you've been the founder and CEO of a very interesting project called the millennium project since 1996, I believe, um, which has some ties to the United Nations University and to the uh, UN system and, and, and to international organizations that we'll talk about a little bit. Um, you're a keynote speaker, obviously, uh, lots of articles published, three books, I believe. Um, and lastly, you know, the funny thing you put in your bio, you're a boomerang stuntman. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, let's start there. So boomerangs, what's so fascinating about those? And how did you get so well, good at it? Well, well, there was a, 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 a lady I was dating at the time who was the chairman of the International Boomerang Annual uh, Contest uh, that was sponsored by the Smithsonian Institution, Washington, D.C. So I figured I'd better learn about boomerangs. So I did. And uh, I, ironically enough, the scholar of boomerangs, in the sense that other people would send their best boomerangs to him to evaluate, was in Washington. So I got to use all the best boomerangs. And uh, so 
uh, one thing after another uh, led to it. But the thing on the stuntman, the last one was the William Tell. This had to do with futures in the sense that we not too crazy about leaving too much of a mess for the next generation. We would like to clean up as much as possible. And what William Tell's story was, he was prepared. Well, he wasn't like this was a crossbow, right? His son. So it was putting the next generation at risk for the present. So, but the, what I did was the apple on my own head, throwing it out and knocking it off my own head. So I'm putting the present in risk rather than the future at risk. So, you know, oh. anyway, <laughs> it's a fun. So fun. I wanted to, to uh, do one thing right off the bat. You corrected me, which I, I, I love uh, mm. because I dabble at, at uh, futurism, I thought. You are very much against that uh, term for, for, for good reasons, actually. Why don't you explain that to me? Yeah. Because, you know, this field has so many labels. I happen to use futurism. A lot of people do, actually. It is the shortest way to describe it, but it has some shortcomings. And you are very, very against using that term. Why is that, Jerome? Well, much of what we do in futures research and I use the word futures research if there's a method involved, as distinct from future studies where you're reading a bunch of other people's stuff and you have a bottle of scotch and you write something. It can still be quite good, but it's not methods. So it's future studies. The reason is that in that, those both pursuits is we're trying to open up the mind to a lot of possibilities. We don't know the truth of the future, but we usually know more than other people about what's the range of possibilities, what are the possible consequences, how could they evolve, what are the if-then things and all, all that sort of stuff. So we're not trying to close down the mind to one ism, whereas you have different isms in history and ideologies say, here is what's true and the rest is false. You know, that we, we, we're trying to open the mind up. So uh, also the, word, the term futurism if your listeners uh, do a Google check, they'll find that it refers to a school of art over 100 years ago in Milan, started in Milan, Italy, uh, that sort of robotized style and, and, uh, and, and, and worshipped the machine from which much of the fascists drew their energy. So we're really not interested in pushing fascism. <laughs> we we want to open up the mind. So therefore, you can call it future. Some, the the short, short term is foresight. A lot of different terms are used, and people get all uptight about different definitions, but it's a lot of public relations stuff. The idea is that we're studying the future possibilities. Um, and it, although it's not, we haven't come to some agreement on what it should be, uh, I, at least I would be happy if if people would not use the term ism in future. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. And, and, you know, at the Millennium Project, which we'll get into in a second, you've spent quite a bit of time on futurist methods and future research methods. Uh, what, what is the variety of, of those methods? What are some of the, uh, I, I guess, most used methods that right. you use in, in your projects? And, and uh, tell me a little bit about this sort of, I guess, almost obsession around methods. Yeah. Um, most futurists uh, have some way of keeping track of, of global change. Uh, it can be uh, some software or different approaches. Uh, it may have teams like the Millennium Project has these nodes around the world and they keep track of a bunch of stuff. So we have a global human system as well as a software system. You want to keep, you want to know what's changing, what's staying the same, what's changing in a consistent way, what's changing in an accelerated way. 
that's the basis that all futures in one way or another do. And it has different names too. The original name was environmental scanning. Then people thought we were just talking about nature. So then it called horizon scanning and you want to do collective intelligence back and forth. It has different terms, but you can call it environmental scanning or horizon scanning. That's the basic one of all. Second uh, would be using simple projections. Uh, you know, what is changing? What rate? You want to look at a bunch of graphs. Uh, mistakenly, people refer to a lot of these projections as scenarios. They talk about population scenario A, population scenario B. Those are projections, perfectly fine to do. They're not scenarios. Scenarios are a story to connect the present to the, to the past. I mean, the present to the future with cause and effect links and decisions, and it has a narrative. Um, and the scenarios is one of the more popular techniques. It is used in a superficial way today. Originally, the scenario was to find out what you didn't know, that you didn't know you didn't know, but you should know in order to know something's possible. That came from the Rand Corporation and a guy named Herman Kahn, because they didn't know how to analyze and prevent World War III. That was their job. All the rest was sort of entertainment. <laughs> And so Herman said, the only way we can find out what we don't know, start to write a story about how it happens. And then you will get to a point where you say, I don't know what happens next. So you stop writing and you do research, talk to people, figure things out. Uh, so, so the idea of original idea of scenarios was to find out what you didn't know that you should. Today, the way it's done is you take a country or a corporation, you say, what are the two biggest uncertainties or three, whatever uncertainties? Then you say, okay, this uncertainty, one way or another way. And then the second certainty, this way or that way exchange. So then you have a little four by four, two by two, but making a grid of four possible futures. And then they describe these futures, like in this scenario, which is not a scenario, it is just a description of a future. Will this strategy work? And then in this future, will this strategy work? So you want to have a strategy that works in this whole scenario space. Nice and tidy, easy thing to do, better than doing nothing. I'm agreeing with that. However, they're not scenarios. A scenario is a story that connects the present to the future. You have to, and it's hard work. And that's why a lot of people don't do it anymore. It's hard work to get cause and effect links. It's an awful lot that you don't know, but that's the value of doing it to find out what you don't know rather than just have a slick presentation get the wow, get the big consulting check and get on the plane, go. <laughs> right. So, so Rome, you're clearly fascinated with this. I want you to just uh, yeah. uh, hone in a couple of more methods before we get sure. to the Millennium okay. Project. So another, another, one of the methods is the Delphi process. I just wanted yes. you to talk about that because yeah, it's okay. so, I mean, you use it, but, yeah, but yeah. it's such a fundamental yeah. method. Yeah, it, it was one of the, uh, along with scenarios that ran, the other one was, uh, um, well, it's also cross-impact matrix, we can go to later. But with Delphi, the idea was you wanted to bring together uh, the, the leading military and people and other consultants about what weapon systems and other kinds of things, conditions are coming up in the future. But it's hard to get all these people in the same room at the same time. And furthermore, only one person talks at a time. And because it's a ranking, the junior officers are afraid to contradict the senior officers. So how do you get around this problem? Well, you have a questionnaire, nothing new about that. But what's new is you take the answers and then you make a second round so that the people have to respond to others that they wouldn't normally respond to. And it's anonymous. So you don't know whether you're responding to a private in the army or a five-star, four-star general. You just don't know. So as a result, ideas become persuasive instead of 
rank or personality. Uh, and then you can take the results out of round two and you can do a third round. And it, some have even gone to five rounds. But the idea is to have a detailed conversation with feedback, serious feedback, organized in such a way. Oh, my goodness gracious. Uh, organized in such a way that um, you can get the wisdom out of all the people. And, and that's its value. Now, the downside of that is it can take six months or almost a year to do it. So if you're in a hurry, it won't work. So Ted Gordon, one of the early developers of this scenario, of the Delphi process, who's the co-founder of the Money Project, came up with an idea of what we call a real-time Delphi. The idea is you have a questionnaire and and people go sign in and it's anonymous. And you can see what other people have said. So you have the, uh, you still have the feedback mechanism, but you can say at nine o'clock on Wednesday, I want to deliver this to the White House. Whatever that, whatever's here is it. You can come back and you can change. You can see other people. You can stop. You can do some research and come back and forth. So it's still an organized body of complex stuff distilled into numbers and text. It can be used for decision maker very quickly. Uh, another method is the uh, futures wheel. Simple idea. Uh, the idea is that events or trends can ripple out uh, consequences. Now, most people are good at primary consequences of things. Uh, virtually everybody's good at that. Uh, but then some people, but then you, so you say the, the, the trend or the event in a little circle in the middle of the paper, then you draw lines out there for the primary consequences. Then you go the secondary lines out again from each one of those. What are the secondary consequences? People don't always do that systematically. And then you can even do tertiary consequences. And then you're really talking about future stuff. And that we ask people to think in terms of what are the environmental consequences? What are the political or government consequences? What are the uh, technological consequences, et cetera, so that you have a more holistic understanding of the secondary and tertiary consequences of things. And Jerome, that method was... uh Partly developed by yourself, right? So yeah. you, you built that method. Yeah, and a fun, fun little story is when I was at the University of Massachusetts, which was the first doctoral program, by the way, in futures research um, in Amherst, Mass. Uh, the university administration said, well, this future stuff is okay for the graduate students, but it's too complex to advance for the undergraduates. So I was annoyed. So I immediately started dealing with daycare kids and first graders and so forth, saying, all right. What's new in your life? Eh, my uncle is visiting. Okay, we put the uncle is visiting in the middle of the circle. What goes with that? Well, I had to move out of my room. So you can do the same. So the, the reasoning process is the same, whether you're doing the world's future or you're doing the uncle's visits. And the futures wheel was, has become one of the most popular techniques, more for futures to use than, than outside. Because let's say if you're writing a scenario and you say, oh, I don't know what, how this will happen. Well, you can stop, do a futures wheel on what you don't know. And see how that comes out. Says, ah, now I can see how that can work. And then you can go back mm-hmm. to this, this scenario. It's also used a lot in workshops. You know, we, you have a group and it gets them into the future thinking real fast. You say, what's a big deal in the future? They say extraterrestrial contact. Fine. So you're right, extraterrestrial contact. But what are all the consequences coming out? And they're guesses, but they're organized guesses. Um, it strikes me so much that this uh, field is a mix of analytics and imagination. And correct. it seems to me that correct. you're very passionate about both correct. aspects. Correct. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I just went through the discussion with some journal guy. They wanted to call it, call it foresight science. I say, it's not a science. 
any. You're applying knowledge with skill. So if you give, there was an experiment on Department of Energy years ago, education years ago, between Stanford, I think, and Syracuse University. Stanford, yeah, that was you guys. And um, they gave them the same data. They're supposed to do some future education sort of stuff. The reports were completely different, not a lot different. So it shows you that the human is still in, involved because we that the future is not an empirical thing. <laughs> it's not here yet. So we, so it, when people cloak themselves in the respectability of science, it's only because they're insecure. Historians don't need it. You know, historians don't say I'm a scientist. They say I'm a historian. So a future should say the same thing. It's not a science. We're not controlling for a variable. Until we get maybe quantum computing can do a simulation of everything, then we can maybe do that. <laughs> Interesting. Bring us back to the mid-90s when you were at, uh, or were doing work, I guess, at the United Nations University, the, the, the nascent yeah. of, of this very important Millennium Project. What, what happened there? Yeah. Well, I was... Um, asked to be the liaison between the UN University headquarters in Tokyo and the United States. And I ended up being both sides. I was U.S.'s person to UN University and UN University's person to the U.S., which gave me a certain flexibility, which is a little unusual in the UN system. And um, a f friend of mine, uh, who later became the co-founder of the Millennium Project, Ted Gordon, said he wanted to do a big study on the future. This is 1988 wanted to do a big study on the future when the year 2000 hits so that we'd have something to say. And I, and he thought this should be done under the UN university. Cause if you do it, cause he, he was running at the time a for-profit organization called the futures group. First for-profit think tank, by the way, in the United States, he says, if we do it, people won't necessarily buy it cause it's a for-profit company. So it's a UN university sort of makes sense. So, okay. And, and I could spell the word future in the, in the UN. So it made sense, except I didn't want to do another study. There are studies and studies and studies and studies and they just sit there in the shelves driving me nuts. So what I wanted to do is create a system a, a, as much as you can have a permanent system in the world, a system that on a global basis could crank out studies and interact between local and global all, all the time. And that became uh, the Millennium Project. Uh, we did a uh, we did a pre-feasibility study in 92 or 91, and we did a three-year feasibility study, and then we started in, in 1996. So it was a long process before we got there. Well, and before you got there, I mean, today you describe it as a voluntary global participatory think tank. That's a bit of a mouthful, yeah. a network, actually, at the yeah. end of that. And it's a nonprofit, and you are doing all this work, and you have a network of some 3,000 plus, 3,500 scholars, and you say business and policy futurists, and there are some other groups of people involved in this work. Um, Tell me how how quickly did that group coalesce? And you know, in the in the early days, you know, who were who you working with? Well, in the beginning, we were under the UN University uh, during the feasibility time, and um, between Ted Gordon and myself, we knew an awful lot of futurists. I mean, we've been involved in this for a while. So we started with some simple Delphi studies: how should we organize this thing? You know, what we should do, what methods, and all that sort of stuff. In the process of the feasibility study, uh, I think it was a guy in Moscow who said, hey, if you do this, I want to be your, your, your Moscow person. 
And then somebody else in Buenos Aires did this similar sort. Of, so, so this idea of nodes sort of came out of the feasibility study. And when we use the word nodes, we mean uh, like the intersection of two or more networks. So like is some business folks, some uh, government folks, some university folks, some NGO folks, so, so, that, you, so that you have a richer uh, ability to answer the question, what's the future of X? Because the business person can talk to the business person, the university person, you know, and so forth. So these nodes be, be, were and it's identified during the feasibility study is this is how we should, one of the ways we should organize ourselves is leave people in their offices where they are. Don't hire them just because you don't need their brain all the time. You just need it once in a while. <laughs> and you need it sometimes to, to identify what are the other brains. Because yeah? I'm not going to know the best person in Iran to do X. But the, the node in Tehran, they will know. Right? And they can also work in the different languages. I don't speak all these languages. So these nodes around the world became a management structure uh, for doing our environmental scanning and, our, 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 and identifying individuals to do the research. So that was a unique uh, evolution of a think tank. It's not the normal way. Usually you have a think tank, everybody in one spot. Uh, but this was a decentralized think tank in that sense. Well, it's an early decentralized think tank, I would say. Um, so now you have around about 50 nodes. Is that 71, then? 71 now. Oh, okay. So there you go. I had old information. Okay. Yeah. yeah we well, tell me a little bit how, how that works, because I want to get into this report, that the bigger uh, report that you've been publishing uh, systematically, 19 of them. It's called the state of the future. I just want you to talk before we get into sort of the scenarios and the index and, and the things that you're writing about in the report. It, so that is organized through these nodes, but you, you do run, a, a, I guess, a combination is this of a, uh, there is a survey and then there are focus groups, I guess, to kind of tease out uh, things for the survey or do you do yeah. surveys during, after? I'm just curious how it all works. Okay. Uh, usually the, f we do an executive summary We're you know, like any executive summary, you're pulling everything together, boom, making it short. Then the first section usually is the updating of 15 global challenges. When the Lenin project began, we sent out a blank piece of paper, essentially saying what's going to happen in the next 25 years. It's a very big deal that is either misunderstood or unknown to people. And what would it look like in 10 years? What would it look like in 25? And give us a reference. So they couldn't just say something. They had to do some work. That led to the initial 15 global, at that time, um, uh, issues. And then people said, that was not cool. You should also look at the good stuff. Because we looked at too much bad stuff. And uh, so we did. And then the third year, we put the issues and opportunities together into the 15 global challenges. So we've kept that approach is to update and improve the insights and better actions on each of the 15 global challenges. So that first section of the report becomes a framework for understanding global change. Here's the global situation. Here's where we ought to go next. And then other chapters in there have whatever research we did, special studies that we did during the previous year. And then there'll be a conclusion. So that's basically how we do it. Now, in putting it together, the 15 global challenges, we have people identifying those changes, and then we send them out for peer review. All of our stuff gets peer reviewed, like you know, any sort of deal. And um, the research, we just publish as it is, whatever, whatever 
research project we did it was future water or future energy or something like that. That's a lot of challenges. 15. Yeah. Yeah. People yeah. keep saying you got to make it shorter. So I'm sorry. I'm not doing public relations here. You guys can do public relations. We're doing research <laughs> and we couldn't get it down to less than 15. But something yeah, you put together and you end up with mush, you know, it, it's, uh, well, yeah. people can read the report and read about all of those 15, but, um, I, I guess my question, let's, let's get into the, to the meat of it. Uh, um, so the timeline, first of all, with the index is what, uh, is the next 10, 10 years. Yeah. We use 20 years past data and, but it's projected out 10. And then we normalize the variables. The basic idea is, is if, if, if the future is better in 10 years, what do you mean by that? Specifically, what can you count, <laughs> right? So you get maybe for the world, maybe 29, 30 variables. And then we send out a little questionnaire saying, here's the 10 year, here's a 20 year piece of data. Here's a 10 year piece of data. Here's current tense. Here's the projection. If nothing else changes in the trend line, mm -hmm. what's the best possible that that variable could be in 10 years? What's the worst it could be in 10 years? So then you can say you're so much to the good. And then you can, so that gives you a bit a ability to normalize the data. So you can put apples and oranges together because the common denominator is, is it good or bad and how much are good or bad? So then you can say the future is getting a bit better because of all these indicators together. Then you can do sensitivity analysis, see which ones are, are more powerful at moving it up. So Jerome, the last report that you had out uh, was a report 19 created in 2015. So it's a good, good while, uh, ago now. I keep getting uh, interrupted. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but in that report, you, you know, the report card for the world, which is another way for talking about these uh, indices, yeah. right? You say we are, uh, allegedly here, uh, winning on education and life expectancy. So you, you saw some positive trends there, but we were losing on terrorism ecology and income inequality. I just, I have picked three. There were more, more observations in there. Yeah. Um, and then you were, uh, optimistic and, and sort of arguing that global foresight and decision-making and science and technology matters should be, you know, put, put higher on the agenda in, in places of policy and, uh, and, and, and also academic study, mm -hmm. uh, I guess. Um, yeah. So tell me a little bit about what, what was the state of the world in 2015? Right. Well, um, if you took, took, put it all together, boiled it down to like a, a couple of sentences, it would be something like this. We are winning more than we're losing, but where we're losing is pretty serious. <laughs> so we have no right to be pessimistic because we're turning around a lot of things that people didn't think were easy to turn around, but where we're losing is seriously, you can't go to sleep either, uh, which I think is a pretty rational position to take. Um, the, 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 the war and peace stuff has gotten annoying lately. We're getting, getting worse on that. Press freedoms is not doing as, as much. So some trends did start to turn around in the last 10 years. So those are two noticeable ones that did start to go in the wrong direction. But on a poverty business, uh, even considering COVID, um, which has been a step back, but hasn't been a step back as much as people thought. Uh, if you go back to 1981, uh, I think it was, that more than half the world was in extreme poverty. Going up to the present tense, it's closer to 
in extreme poverty. And the population has grown a lot during that time as well. So we are clearly winning on the issue of extreme poverty much better than people ever thought. Because we can also, when we ask people over the years, what's the best possible, worst possible, we can take a look at that through time. Where were people more pessimistic than they should be? And where were they more optimistic than they should be? So it's an interesting little analysis within the analysis. But we are very pessimistic about how well we can do on poverty. Uh, but we were uh, over-optimistic uh, on the war and peace stuff. So I'm just curious, in this longitudinal business, which is really admirable because it's so hard to do, right? And you've done it over so many years. These 15 factors got kind of stabilized at some point early on, but then you're, you're yeah. sort of stuck with them. Aren't you frustrated huh. sometimes that even if there's 15, you're missing something? Yeah. Uh, is that when you yeah. issue special reports? Uh, well, no, we do special reports because... In our studies, there's a big gap, like, you know, the, the, the ability to, to understand the initial conditions of artificial general intelligence is not done well. That's a big gap. So we want it. So we, we, it's, it's more like we're, we do stuff that we think others haven't done well or haven't done at all. So that's sort of the, the idea of those studies. Um, but I lost track in, in, in the middle of your question. Yeah, no, I was just curious, uh, you know, how you deal with the fact that history obviously evolves. Oh, yeah, 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 so yeah, yeah, you yeah, have 15, you, have, you know, yeah, yeah. we were saying 15 is a lot of topics, but yeah. but surely, you know, if you crafted those back in 96 or even before yeah. that, yeah. Um, even the UN, slow moving yeah. UN, you know, moves to some new challenges. They came up yeah. with, you know, various formulations yeah. of their own yeah. goals, uh, you know, which are also a lot. Yeah. Uh, well, so how do you handle all, that first evolution? First of all, the UN is just doing goals. They're not doing challenges as such. We have goals within the challenges. We cover all the thing, you know, the, the challenges, the UN uh, goals stuff. But a challenge is an ongoing thing, you know. And we were very good analysis to begin with that didn't have to change much. Now, we did do a change uh, several years ago on education because the amount of new research on the brain and the new research and development on artificial intelligence and the relationship of the two is such a gigantic thing. We figured we had to separate that out uh, by itself. And then we put together two decision-making things together. So we still had 15, but that's about the only change. Because remember the first year was uh, issues, second year was opportunities, third was challenge. And from that time challenge until now, we really only made one change. Because I mean, like the water, the water's not going away tomorrow morning. I mean, that's, that's, that's been a, that was a challenge 15 years ago. And is it 20 years ago? And is it a challenge now? Hmm. So most of these things were good judgments to begin with that they're ongoing. They're also a framework for understanding. It's just like we had the body, we had the respiratory system, circulatory system. You know, those things don't change. They're basic. This is how we understand the body. So how do you understand the body of the world, so to speak? And we're suggesting mm -hmm. these 15 global challenges is as good as you can get. Hmm. So there are challenges and then there's also driving forces. Can you, um, and I, and I want to want to get into the second part, which, you know, we've talked about scenarios in the abstract, but you also in this report and in other reports, you do do scenario work yourself, uh, with a 2025 year, a timeframe. So longer <clears throat> than these, uh, the index of challenges. Uh, so, so here you're in the business of, of storytelling, but, but also, you know, based on real, real data here. Um, but, um, 
Yeah. So tell me perhaps a little bit about uh, these uh, scenarios that you had for the 2015 report. I uh, can quickly summarize what I understand, but so there's three scenarios. One is sort of its complicated scenario. The second one is more turmoil scenario. And the third one is a very positive humans. Sec- uh, humans are self-actualizing we're, you know, uh, coming to our potential type of, uh, freedom, uh, to operate type of, uh, scenario. Um, maybe you could just give me a sense of, I guess, uh, speaking to your earlier point, these are hard to develop. They, they, they're not super obvious. There's obviously one good one and one kind of tragic or turmoil one, and then one mixed. So, so that's a fairly traditional method. Tell me a little bit about maybe what each of those are are saying and and how you're using these scenarios and and maybe a little bit about how how you got to them. Okay. Uh, This goes back to the idea of finding the gaps in futures research around the world. A lot of people have been talking about technological unemployment for some time. And we found that the studies were pretty short range. So you really couldn't talk about major impact. They're five years, maybe or so average. And they tended to be within one industry or one country. But there wasn't anything really in our judgment that was good on the global basis and long enough into the future that you can talk about economic system changes and culture changes. Um, And we thought that it would be important to lay out the long-term futures of these things so that people can start to come back to the present tense and say, therefore, what do we do now? <clears throat> and at the end of these scenarios, we ended up having national workshops. We can come back to that if you want. So the idea was we, we started off with another Delphi saying, you know, what are the most important issues about this? So, so we, we, we pulled in tons of content on what the scenarios ought to be, what they are, what's important for them to address, uh, what are the key variables in technology. And we didn't look just at AI, by the way. We also looked at synthetic biology and other technologies are going to get involved. That was another thing, by the way, a little aside. We must have gone through at least 30 to maybe 50 studies before we began reading other people's studies. And I would do keyword searches on all of them on different things. And one I put in was synthetic biology. Not one report at that time had the word synthetic biology in it. And this could be as big a deal as the Industrial Revolution, but it wasn't factored in. So that's why we we did the study. We thought the other studies were not that good. Okay. So uh, why, again, we took it out to 2050, again, because there you can start to talk about large-scale changes, which you couldn't if you're just a couple of years. Um, The... An easy way of looking at this, you can say, with, with all that data you collect and all that information that you took and reading other people's stuff for what are the important questions that weren't answered well, um, what questions should be asked? So then that brings in a bunch of stuff. And then we wrote, said, if it turns out badly, what does it look like? If it turns out well, what does it look like? If it turns out mixed, what does it look like? And then we took those scenarios and we sent those out and saying, you know, criticize it and not go through it and da 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 and so that's how those, those scenarios got done. A couple of the variables that might be interesting to your audience was uh, one surprise, surprise, was how well countries could put together a long-range strategy on the transition from narrow to general intelligence. We went to 2050. So 2050, it's not 
completely irresponsible to talk about general. We may not have it, but, but we could. All right. Countries that don't respond well, don't get ready for it. They can plan for narrow intelligence, like how many truck drivers are going to be replaced because how many trucks, robot trucks are being built, how we're going to buy them. I mean, you can do a linear analysis and you can figure that out. But with general intelligence, cuts across everything. So you, so you get a lot of surprises in unemployment. And that's the big shock. So we assume that that shock occurs. But in the good scenario, countries had transition strategies in place. And in the scenario, we talk about how those transition steps occur so you don't get the big shock. And in the good one, one of the other key variables was, was the art. Because it's art that controls culture. I know the economists think it's economics, but it's culture. Yeah, it's just art. And so you got to get the playwrights involved. You got to get the TV script writers involved. You got to get the movie script so that we can look at how can a self-identity change? Right now, you have identity because you are at Stanford. You're an economist or you're a statistician or you're a this, you're a that. Who says so? That's your job. But if you're creating your own life, connecting to markets worldwide, Inventing yourself as you go with your AI avatar helping <laughs> to find you opportunities, then that's very insecure for most people. They, they can't, they don't, most people want to fit in. The idea of creating their niche rather than fitting into a niche is not the normal human deal. So that's a cultural change. So that, that, so that having the arts involved in that change made that happen more smooth. It was not a perfect scenario. There's some negative stuff. You called it a conscious technology age. And there yeah. were only two questions yeah. that, that scenario said. What kind of life are you creating? And are you boring or interesting? I thought that was <laughs> kind of putting it to the point. Yeah, right. Well, I mean, look, look, if you have all the basic stuff at your command, if you have all this sort of health, you know, all, well, what's interesting? Your life. You know, what, what do you do? Are you boring? I mean, who wants to be around somebody boring? I mean, if you can be anywhere in the world with cyberspace and all that sort of, why would you be with anybody boring? You know, so being interesting is is a, is the new kind of a wealth. <laughs> yeah, the the scenario to the turmoil one is you know takes a, a lot to get into, and I think yeah. it may, may take us too far. But you have you know you have some bad incidents in there, some individual that kills people, uh, and and some anti technology movements. And, and, and a lot of organized crime, which I found interesting because it, it, it is one of those challenges that, uh, I think are, they're, they're quite, you know, it's an insidious challenge. Yep. And a lot of people who study the future would sort of say that that's more of a day-to-day -day challenge. Everybody has it. Why do we have to talk about it? But you, you find this fundamental. And I think I agree with you. Yeah. Um, well, imagine if organized crime, I mean, organized crime in our view is, two to three times on a global basis money uh, than all the military budgets combined in the world. I mean, that's a hell of a statement, which means that they've got the liquid cash to buy the best talent in the world, and they know how to set up dummy corporations. So you can set up a whole bunch of dummy corporations. So you think you're working for the good guys, and you're not. Um, Organized crime is not going to sit on its hands on artificial intelligence. I mean, consider cybercrime. They're already, cybercrime is a giant industry. So they're not going to just sit on their hands for the next 30 years. They're going to get involved in artificial general intelligence too. Yeah. And to your point there, I just, the only thing I wanted to, uh, to tease out here was, was there was a statement in there that, um, 
the AI race was going to turn into half of, of, of all the major military R and D budgets. Yeah. And in, in context with what you just said though, you know, the, that suddenly isn't such an extreme statement because if you're sort of saying, uh, you know, all the crime networks are, are already going to be deeply into it, then of course, not just sort of classic sort of regime, uh, operations, but, but actually defending yourself, you know, from, from these other types of, uh, scenarios yeah. would, would become important. Um, I guess I, I just want to pick up one thing there because it relates to stuff you're actually actively doing now on, on AI, whether or not we think that AI in the, with a big general, uh, term, you know, is going to be relevant in the next uh, two, three, four, 10 decades. There is a regulatory challenge here, no matter what, isn't there? Yeah. And, and regulation at a global basis, uh, you, you have some pretty strong views there and you, you're connected to the UN system. That's not easy. That's what not what easy. is your best case scenario for, for global regulation? And we can take AI, um, and we don't even have to assume that it's, you know, general, scary, massive AI, but we can just say AI is diffused into everywhere in society and it does something profound and we need to regulate it. How, how long in your estimate, if we say that we have somewhat started that process now, how right. long is that going to take Jerome before we have a global solid AI regulation? It, it might never happen. I mean, I, I don't want to take any bets on this, but this is really, 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 really difficult. I am uh, a voting member on the IEEE Standards uh, Committee on Artificial General Intelligence Governance. Matter of fact, I'm just going through stuff <laughs> earlier this morning on things. And um, where we get into the de detailed, precise definitions that auditors can use to certify an AI. Okay. Now, there's no global standards on this stuff other than the ISO, who finished before us, by the way. IEEE thinks they're going to do a better job. There's a little competition there. <laughs> anyway, but the thing is that there's not a, 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 there's not a global ITU or... International Atomic Energy Agency-like thing for this. All we have going for us is people who say, I want to be ISO compliant or I want to be IEEE compliant. You know, I, you know, I have met these standards. I have been audited by these things. You can trust my AI because I have done what I'm supposed to do. That's about the only power of enforcement we've got at the moment. And I don't see a treaty coming up on this is just narrow intelligence, not the general stuff. stuff we got now, I don't see a governance coming up for that for a while. And I'm going on a global basis. I see these ideas of audits, like we have, like we have financial audits, you know, you, we don't have a global in, in financial enforcement agency as such. Uh, but we have people, all businesses want to have an audit. They want to, you know, there, there is a, is some sort of, governance in that sense. But I am optimistic that the people working on artificial general intelligence, the actual code folks, know the nightmare potentials in spades. In the same way, we knew in spades what was going on um, in the atomic energy world. Uh, we 
we, and, and weapons. Because you in the Cold War, we had classified stuff. No one wanted to tell each other what their weapons were and all. You know, there's a lot of secret stuff going on. It was a serious deal. But we figured out a way to manage it. And it worked enough that we didn't have World War III. And I don't know, some of your audience who will have some gray hair like me will remember, most people thought we were, it was inevitable. They believed it was inevitable. But we figured out how to manage it. Why? Because the people who understood all this sort of stuff says, we got to work it out. I think that the artificial general intelligence folks doing this stuff for real know we have to do it. Even Elon Musk, who is, as you know, not too crazy about government regulation stuff at all, he has been on the record several times that I have heard him say, no, no, we got to do this. Imagine you have no rules and traffic in city. It would be a mess. Well, it would, you know, we, and he uses that example. Of that. So I think that there is more of a, an emergency will be understood about this than there is about narrow. So ironically, it might be possible to get more agreements on general than it is on a narrow. Now, just for your audience to realize, you got to, first of all, you got to come up with your definitions, your values, your principles, all that sort of stuff, which is in process. But we've also got to get what we, what we call initial conditions. If we get the initial conditions right, then I'm much more optimistic. Why? Because the, if you get the initial conditions for artificial general intelligence, then how artificial super intelligence gets evolved would be determined, hopefully, by these initial conditions for general. So I think the only chance we have is getting these initial conditions right and then figuring out how do we audit, how do we manage, how do we have treaties, how do we have an enforcement system. And I figure we're lucky if we can do that in 10 years. Hmm. I mean, and I think, I, I think it's possible simply because the people who are involved in this know how serious it is. Hmm. Well, I think we, we should pick up on the specifics of this in, in another podcast, but I want to move now by, by sort of passing through this scenario one, which is this mixed bag, which I guess uh, perhaps the common observer would assume, you know, it is going to be a mixed bag. It's kind of yeah. a reasonable assumption that, you know, uh, the yeah. world may not, you know, end as we know it. It's perhaps right. a reasonable assumption that right. it, it won't all be, you know, madness and, 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 uh, tragic, but it won't all be, you know, flourishing either. Right. If we, let's just use that scenario to think about how you think, uh, futurist research, futurist studies, um, how would that body of knowledge and the people involved in it, how is that going to evolve? So we've talked about pretty serious things. You have built a very large network of people who care about these things and, and, you know, you're involved in the struggle that it is to get those same people as motivated as they are to prioritize your surveys and your workshops. And, and I know that that's must be a struggle, you know, no matter how exciting and scary these things combined are, how do you see the field evolving? Cause there are a lot of challenges. We, we haven't gotten into the nitty gritty of this, but I know that, you know, you have faced some of these, uh, difficulties building your program. Every futurist, uh, faces some kind of pushback. It's not a domain that fits neatly anywhere. You know, with your best uh, thinking hat on, what's going to happen to this field? Well, at the moment, it's becoming quite stylish, fad to call yourself a futurist. If you go on LinkedIn, I'm a statistician and I'm a design expert and I'm a futurist, you know. So there's no standards uh, for futurists, just like there's no standards for in the art world. You know, so anybody can say they're an artist, right? Anybody can say they're a futurist. 
because it's hard to have conventional standards because there's a futurist named Bucky Fuller or R. Buckminster Fuller who gave us synergy in the geodesic dome and doing more with less and design science. I mean, major contributions to future stuff, but he never finished college. <laughs> you know, he, he, he didn't do a lot of stuff that, that people would say you have to do to be a futurist. I say, if, you, if, if your standards don't accept Bucky Fuller, then they're not good. Uh, so we're still in that limbo and probably will be for some time. But going back to it becoming more stylish, uh, eventually, hopefully, people will start to say, well, okay, what's real in all that nonsense, <laughs> you know? And I think that several things will come out. One, more and more um, modeling. Uh, modeling is getting better and better and better and better and better and better. And it's not that the model makes a decision, but the model it can inform. As Herman Kahn said some years ago, it's not the model that matters, it's the modeler. Because not everything gets in the model and the modeler knows why. And the modeler is much smarter about the whole model than the model itself. So talk to the modelers. Okay. So that's one, one part of it. I think a second part of it, it'll become a bit normalized in the same way that we have history normalized. If you're going to study biology, it's quite normal for somebody to talk about some religious priest doing some genetics work years ago. And it's, it's just normal for us to, to, to bring in the history to a subject we talk about. How did, where did it come from? Where, who were the leaders? I think we will okay, we'll start to get to the point where more and more when you study something, you'd also look at the future possibilities, not what will happen, but what, what are the possibilities. So I think that's another factor of, of normalization. I think a third factor it will be artificial intelligence. Futures will increasingly make friends with artificial intelligence uh, work to, to, to save them time and to get them to do stuff that they wouldn't have done otherwise. And to some degree, we may uh, uh, get replaced by them. Uh, one of the experiments we we're thinking about doing, couldn't get NSF to fund it because I didn't get around to writing the proposal, <laughs> was to say, give all of our data that we can over all of you and have, that, have an AI answer the Delphi and then have the same stuff to the normal Delphi process and see what the difference is between the AI answering the questions and the, the, the international panel answering the questions. So there may be some replacement there. I think that something was happening just this year which is important to the whole field. The uh, United Nations Secretary General came out with a report called Our Common uh, Agenda. In there was five foresight elements, including a futures lab, periodic global reports on the future, and a uh, summit on the future coming out in 2024. That will bring a lot of, that'll bring a lot of attention for politicians and futurists to begin to talk together that weren't there before. And we're pushing it that that conversation hopefully happens. Then OECD has uh, a, a government foresight community. These are futurists in the, in the prime minister's office, the president's office, or someone they, do, they don't call a futurist, but somebody who does that stuff for them. And they're now in league, in collaboration and learning together. And, and I was in the, this year's session and last year's session, and to me, the growth was phenomenal. Third, Finland has a committee for the future in their parliament. And they've had it for years. It's, it's been very valuable to them, helped them transition from, the, from their lost position after, world, or after the Cold War to now becoming established again as one of the top countries in the world. They now have started a summit and a little bit of a movement among other parliaments around the world to create their own committees for the future. So once again, the legislative function, which normally is not a futuristic activity much at all, 
has got to start to talk to futurists more than before. So again, that's getting into decision making. Third, Finland, not Finland, sorry, Dubai has decided it wants to become the hub of all futures research. We'll see if that actually happens. But in any case, the, the idea is to create a, a global future society to bring together all this sort of stuff and cross-fertilize and get smarter in quality as well. And um, these different moves are just recent. And we're in the process of trying to get the synergies among them right now so that they all get smarter together. So th that part of the conversation to me could improve the quality of futures research. Um, so I'm optimistic that the phenomena will, I mean, it's exploding worldwide. I mean, COVID helped it a lot because people would say, well, did you say anything about the pandemics and said, yeah, in our very first report, we said civilization could come to a grinding halt. Grinding halt. I was shocked that I actually said that. It was so brutal, but it, but it did. It, it, it did come to a grinding halt, as you know. Still in certain parts in China, still come to the grinding halts. Uh, so uh, there's been an increasing attention to saying, oh, we're not paying attention to these four warnings. Hmm. So I, I have noticed uh, an explosion in, in future stuff uh, during and after, especially just after. Well, it's not completely after, but in the last year, it's been an incredible number of, of, of growth, of change, and just by the number of Zoom conversations and so forth around the world. It's just populating like crazy. Hopefully, there'll be some more evaluations and feedback, and it gets, you know, you learn with our feedback, it's smarter and it gets more. But the idea of normally thinking about future possibilities of whatever it is you're looking at, I think will become almost as normalized as we do for history. Wow. This is, uh, it's interesting. I'm going to, I'm going to leave you with a quote from your, uh, latest report and just have a quick comment from your side, because I thought it was pretty poignant. So you said we need hard headed, pragmatic idealists willing to understand the depths of human depravity <laughs> and the heights of human wisdom. Right. That's a tall order. Well, that's what we need. I mean, you know, there's a, there's a, I don't know, it's a, it a Hindu expression or but anyway, it comes out of India. They talked about this blissed out sadhu. He's totally enlightened and he's just wonderful. And he's walking through the forest and he's so enthralled with everything. That he steps on a cobra's tail oh, and he's dead. <laughs> we don't want that. <laughs> we don't want just blissed out people saying, hey, all we got to do is pray five times a day and the world will work. You know, no offense to anybody, but those religious Things that were created to create a peaceful world have not succeeded because they didn't look at necessarily the, 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 the stuff stuff. I mean, you, you know, to me, a serious futurist looks at the worst, but then figures out how to draw on the best to address it. Uh, I, it's hard for me to do any better than that really precise statement you said. But I think that that's what futures research should do. Now, there are normative futurists that just look at the positive side. And, I, and I, I'm happy that that is done, but that's not the whole picture. It's just like in, in, the, in the canvas world, you want some people that make the pigments, some people who make the canvas, some people make the wood frames, you know, but the artist is bringing it all together. So we, we, we need all those elements. Um, but naive futures do not help us if that's the, if, if that's the only pill we swallow. Hmm. Um, and the pessimists are, are too easy. All I got to say is, hey, you can't do anything. It's over. That to me is a cowardly intellectual use of the brain. 
but the other extreme is also ridiculous. <laughs> so to have that balance, Jerome, it's been fascinating. I hope I can have you back. Thank you very much. Anytime. You have just listened to another episode of the Futurized podcast with me, Trondarne Unheim, futurist scholar and author. If you are interested in my products or services, feel free to check out futurized.org slash store, where you can book a keynote speech, become a sponsor or partner, request a podcast swap, or buy a few of my books, such as Augmented Lean, Health Tech, Future Tech, Pandemic Aftermath, Disruption Games, or Leadership From Below. If you're interested in any or all of my projects, check out my website, trondundheim.com, which has links to other podcasts as well as my public appearances. Thank you. Please share this show with those you care about. To find us on social media is easy. We are Futurized on LinkedIn and YouTube and Futurized 2 on Instagram and Twitter. See you next time. Futurized, conversations that matter.